Hi everyone, thank you very much for coming today. Um, it's a really exciting seminar. Um, we're going to be looking at the launch of Gender, Sexuality and Social Justice, What's Law Got to Do With It, which is a, an amazing collection that we've produced recently at IBS. So the background for the project this comes from is as part of a, a larger scale grant at the Institute, uh, the Sexuality and Poverty and Law Program has looked at the kind of changing face of gender and sexual identity in both the law and kind of poverty fields. Um, today we've got the launch of this, this, this collection that we've put together um, and we're gonna have several speakers kind of talking really about different elements of it to give you kind of a flavor of it. It's quite, it's, there's a diversity in it which I, which I hope will come across in the kind of presentations we're gonna have today. So um, we have three kind of key speakers. We have um, Dr. Elizabeth Mills, who is the lead on this project, um, Arturo Garcia Sanchez Garcia, and Kay Leila as well. They're both, they're all gonna introduce themselves a little bit and talk about how they came to be involved in the project, what their interest was in it, and then kind of look at some reflections themselves of um, what they find particularly interesting in the work that's come out of it. I'll start with Beth. Hi. Um, gosh, it's really great to see so many of you here, and I recognize a number of you from classes that I've taken, so welcome everyone. I should start by saying that this this publication, which I know I'm not biased at all in saying I think is really great, <laughs> is a real um, witness to teamwork. And it includes teamwork with people like Beth over here, who's been a fantastic productions manager, working with a great set of editors. So I'm passing these around for you to have a look at. I'm afraid we have very limited copies, so I can't give them to you, but you can get a sense of a sense of the publication. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, an outcome of a, a two-year-long journey that goes right back in time to when I actually started this position. And I came in, um, initially, one of the first things we needed to do was create a toolkit. And the toolkit that we created is available. You can have a look at some of the different resources here, someone's kindly put out these little um, handouts. The toolkit started to articulate some of the issues and debates around sexuality and social justice. It offered some tools to understand policy and the law. It also offered some practical resources and avenues for taking action. So it was the beginning of this journey. Um, but I guess it was also the beginning of my own, my own professional journey leading this program. And over time, and in conjunction with my colleague Stephen Wood and with Polly Haste, who's one of the co-editors, we started to engage in some of these debates in a little bit more depth. And um, through that process, we held a, um, a legal symposium that brought together activists and academics and policymakers. We had Baroness North overspeak and Diffid attended. So we had a really wide range of different different people present in this room. And it was really exciting. And Arturo is going to speak a little bit more to this process. But from my perspective, it was really exciting having come out of an academic background and seeing that it, it's not only necessary, but it's also quite exciting to look at what happens when you get conversations going across and between policymakers and academics and lawyers and social activists. And I found that so often, there is a mismatch. We don't necessarily talk to one another as well as we can. And the symposium was an opportunity for us to find better ways of talking. But also, as we say in the, in the introduction to the collection, 
We've also needed to find better ways of listening. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a bit of a flavor of, of the introduction to the edited collection because it, it speaks to the principle of holding conversations that start to disrupt a lot of the power dynamics that, that, that inhere in work around sexuality and social justice. The power dynamics that as a program we've also wanted to understand and also work towards disrupting when it's largely been through the work of local organizations, partners that we've worked with now in about 30 countries around the world that have articulated many of their own struggles and we've worked with them to say what kind of research methods are going to be useful for you in order to make the changes you want to see made at a national level. And so this work, which I guess falls under the, this um, term engaged excellence that we've done through the program has been about listening to the needs of local partner organizations, understanding what some of their, what some of their policy objectives are as activists, as researchers, and finding ways of mobilizing evidence in order to interact with policy at a national level, and then also at an international level. I'm happy to speak a little bit more about that process if you'd like afterwards. And when I've caught my breath. <laughs> um, right, so we, we, open, we open the editor collection with this quote. If you start from the negative minimalisms of sheer survival and bare life, of violence, suffering, deprivation, and destitution, then you provide a very different description of lives than if you begin from people's situated concerns. Our tendency to focus on the dystopic has been at the price of forgetting to think about other ways of thinking. And this is by Marsland uh, in 2002 and 2012. So we, we would like to believe that the editor collection offers other ways of thinking. It offers new ways of thinking about the rapidly changing nature of sexuality and gender politics, and the need to interrogate the way in which law and legal processes translate into lived experience in different socioeconomic political and legal contexts. So we started this journey, as I said, with a shared belief that dialogue, where both talking and listening are given equal importance, really matters, and that it's an important starting point for fostering meaningful social transformation. So we'd like to think that this edited collection offers other ways, other ways of talking through the richer way, array of visual and written contributions by 33 people in at least 20 countries that span almost every continent in the world. Through the array of contributions, the collection suggests that perhaps there are also other ways that we can listen better to one another. This approach to listening was fostered during the legal symposium, which Atira will speak to, and it continues through the interweaving of accounts of lawyers, activists, and academics through the collection. Importantly, the collection doesn't start from the place of negative minimalisms doesn't start from the place that foregrounds the extent to which oppressive structures in Giddens' thinking around structuration bear down on people's ability to navigate their life. Nor does it insist on describing the origins and causes of exclusion and discrimination linked to gender and sexuality. It is also not entirely reflective of the enduring possibility of hope that Hannah Arendt and others have written, written about, where the fundamental condition of politics is plural and goes on among plural human beings each of whom can act and start something new. So what we're trying to say here is it's not simply about structures bearing down on people or about people's agency to push back. We say that in fact, 
the works is situated in a muddy middle ground where we need to recognize the nature of different forms of oppression, but we also need to recognize the ways that people are situated in very different kinds of contexts and have really innovative strategies to act up and on these oppressive structures. So instead, the editor collection lies somewhere in the middle. People are at starting place, and because it is situated in their lives, it is a far muddier story. It offers hope in the quieter, everyday ways that people and communities have resisted oppressive structures that limit their lives on the basis of gender and sexuality. But it also asks us to bear witness to the violent politics of their precarious life. Our interest in exploring sexual and gender justice reflects an ongoing tension in the way that laws and rights feature in current debates on sexuality and gender politics. Appeals to law are an increasingly common feature of movements that pursue different forms of sexual and or gender justice. And as some of the contributions in the collection show, these appeals can be successful. However, as other contributors highlight, the tension of this turn to law manifests itself in the way in which diverse forms of sexual and gender justice might take are increasingly translated into legal language and frameworks, including the language of rights. So through our collection, we seek to recognize and acknowledge rather than resolve this tension. Thus, the pursuit of sexual and gender justice recounted in the collection encompasses, among other topics, transgender advocacy, LGBT rights struggles, capacity building among young people, women's health and security, religion, movements across borders, and the questions of resource allocation and socioeconomic exclusion. And we suggest throughout the collection that the law may play a greater or lesser role in any of these struggles. And so our aim is not to bring all discourses together under one label, movement or form of activism, illegal or otherwise, but to listen carefully to diverse and often unheard voices. Sexual and gender justice may refer to the law or to sexual rights, but that's not all that this encompasses or all that our collection seeks to explore. Key to the groundbreaking nature of this work is the interrogation of the changing dynamics of sexuality and gender politics by asking how law and legal processes translate into people's lived experience in different socioeconomic, political, and legal contexts. The contributions to the collection really coalesce around two main questions, and Kay and Arturo are going to speak to each of these questions in turn. Hi, Francesca. So the first question that Kay is going to be speaking in a little bit more detail to is how useful is the law for attaining sexual and gender justice? The second question that Achira will speak to responds to a set of, collection, uh, of articles in the collection that look at the scope for joint working to advance sexual rights. And unsurprisingly, we find that the responses to these questions are complex, multifaceted, and open-ended. So we really are not saying that this collection is definitive and answers any um, questions around rights, the question of rights or of social justice and the importance of turning to the law for advancing sexual and gender, gender rights. So we're saying, what are people doing around the world and how are they engaging with the law in these different kinds of contexts to advance their rights <coughs> in very different socioeconomic and political contexts? I'd like to conclude because I I'm getting nudged by Stephen. Subtly. Subtly. <laughs> 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 
by a statement that was offered by Wanja Mohongo, uh, who directs Africa's only um, development agency called UHI, and she will be coming and speaking at the IDEAS conference later this year, which is fabulous. She writes that history gets written by who gets to the paper first. So just as Europeans came to have discovered African mountains and lakes without regard to the Africans already living there, queer landscapes are now being discovered by the global north. These queer landscapes are being put on paper and in statements, so much so that there is now a great deal of stumbling over allies. And so what, we, what we've sought to do through this, through this collection and through the different kinds of conversations that are fostered through this collection is to have people articulating in their own voice, whether it's through an interview, or whether it's through a photo essay, or through a longer academic article, the kinds of struggles that they encounter in different parts of the world in order to start shaping collectively a global ownership of what Wanja refers to as the queer landscape. Sorry, if I hand over to you. Okay. I will, yeah. So my name is Kay Lawler. I'm a lecturer in law at Manchester Metropolitan University, and I also hold the Leverhulme Early Career Research Fellowship um, for a project called um, International Relations and LGBT Rights, Diplomacy, Conditionality, and Activism. So I am... Um, as Beth has said, I'm going to be speaking to the first question that we try and address in the collection. How useful is the law for attaining sexual and gender justice? Um, and this, this section, I think, speaks very clearly to the second part of the title, what's law got to do with it? And the answer that I think or that I would suggest these papers kind of come to is um, it's complicated. Definitely something, but it's complicated. There's a lot of nuance in what is going on here. And what I, what I really like about the papers in the first part of the collection is that they, they really try and unpack and unpick what this means. The problem this causes for me is that there's such depth and richness in these papers that there's no way I can address everything here in 10 minutes. So what I'm gonna do is try and raise one or two points that really struck me as I was editing the collection and as I was reading back through it yesterday, and we can perhaps discuss them further later on. So, how useful is the law for attaining sexual rights? Well, I think it's unlikely we can entirely escape law when we're talking about sexuality and gender justice. Um, but nor is law some kind of um, band-aid or something that will s solve all problems that we encounter. It's not the means by which we are going to easily attain sexual and gender justice. Um, as Inyaki notes in his interview in the, per in the um, first section, and it's quite a long quote, so I apologize, law gives us resources to translate social claims into structures, into an order that already has a defined structure. Law functions at the same time as a tool to maintain the status quo of a community, which is what it is often used for, but there are also some exceptional and wonderful cases where law proves to be the opposite, a tool for social change. 
And this quote, I think, encapsulates the tension that we find in the first section of the collection, and in fact in the whole collection that Beth is speaking to. Um, the most obvious and I think un uncontroversial thing to say here is that law is a double-edged sword. It can be hyper-visible, it can be invisible, it can be a tool of control, it can be a tool of liberation. And it's important to note that this section starts with works by three lawyers, Aston Paver in um, Malaysia, Alison Tom and Inyaki, all of you who make clear nods towards the way in which they and others have been able to use the law to challenge power, to tap into already existing narratives, or to open up spaces for belonging. So, this is kind of a tentative one chair for law. But the pieces that follow, and the pieces um, that I've already spoken about, don't act as a wholesale endorsement of a legal approach or of a wholly legal approach. Paver places his um, discussion in the wider context of um, the work of justice for sisters in Malaysia. So he speaks about a particular case, but then speaks about how this case has been related to other campaigning work that they've been doing, how this case has opened up particular spaces for them. Alison Com talks about her wider campaigning and lobbying work. And um, Inyaki emphasizes the context-specific nature of the work that's being done in Argentina. So law's not the whole of the answer, and we can't limit ourselves to wholly legal solutions. I think that's okay. My computer's about to run out, so if I start looking at my phone, that's because I've also got a copy of what I want to <laughs> say on my phone, so I do apologize. Um, okay, so far so uncontroversial. But there's a second part to the quote that I think bears highlighting. And that's the, the um, part where Inyaki says that the law is about the translation of social claims into an already defined structure. Law is a particular language or a discourse, an operation of power. And what we make possible or visible through our use of law um, or what law makes visible is part of this act of translation. And this quite cl clearly highlights the non-neutrality of law and rights. And we hint at this in the introduction that we wrote to the first section, where we talk about our tendency to dehistoricize and to despatialize rights. Um, we have a tendency, I think these papers speak to, um, we have a tendency to erase the temporality <coughs> of particular cases or of particular forms of legal action. Um, and Svati Shah in this section speaks of this very forcefully. Law becomes kind of totalizing or ossifying it ossifies a particular narrative or a form of action, which is quite problematic, be this kind of the association of sex work with human trafficking or gay marriage with narratives of prosperity or um, the incorrect assumption that women who sleep, who have sex with women in South Africa are not at risk of HIV. And what this pa the papers in this section speak to is the power of counter-narratives as a form of action or resistance. And I think this is really embodied in a really fascinating way throughout the collection. Um, to give one example that really struck me is the paper by Elfeki and Raymond, Raymond when they work to unpack and counter the narrative that Islam is anti-sex and in fact find a rich tradition that celebrates sexual diversity and sexual pleasure. And they write about that so beautifully in this collection. It's a really wonderful, um, wonderful uh, contribution. So that's kind of the first thing I want to draw out. 
the other thing I want to draw out is the idea that this act of translation can operate in other ways. Um, and in particular, a number of papers in the collection, um, we see the way uh, hypervisibility or invisibility can operate through particular forms of legal action. So certain things might be made visible or invisible because of the operation of law. Um, Nisha Ayub, to give just one example, discusses the way in which the criminalization of transgender women in Malaysia renders them hyper-visible when they're moving in public space. So um, this was one of the papers that I edited and we had a long discussion about the way in which women might just be going, going to the shops, driving, walking through space, things that we should be able to do. And because they are transgender, they are rendered hyper-visible to the law and um, often subject to violence, both state violence and violence from the people around them. Um, along a different trajectory, Miranda discusses the way that women who have sex with women are rendered invisible in the discourse of HIV and AIDS. Uh, Clara O'Connell discusses the erasure of reproductive rights from international and, re and regional jurisprudence on gender and gender-based violence. So that's kind of the second thing I wanted to pull out. Related is um, a point that's concerned with the relationship, visible or otherwise, between the operation of law and state power, um, particularly with respect to sexual and gender justice in different contexts. This is again brought up very clearly in several, several of the papers. So El Seki and Raymond talk about an unholy alliance between Islam and state power in which Sharia is used to assert and reinforce patriarchally organized structures of political organization. Uh, Sylvana Tapia's paper talks about the way in which criminal law um, can co-opt almost feminist concerns around violence against women. And this brings me, I think, to my final point, and one that speaks to everything that I've already spoken about, and that is the significance of the material context in which the law operates and the context uh, and the consequences of the erasure of this material context. Um, Naomi Rizandana and Nisha Ayub, uh, Ayub discussed the role of law in contributing to a kind of material precarity. Um, the way in which um, a legal situation which is difficult to negotiate for a particular individual is unenabling, creating problems for, in uh, Nisha's paper, for transgender women and for LGBT people in Naomi's paper. So the material context of law matters, and that's, I think, the point I want to finish on. The legal context of criminalization and discriminatory practice matters. The poverty and violence that sexual minorities and women are subject to matters. And this context can be lost in when we adopt a purely legal focus. Um, Svati Shah, and this is my final point, I promise, suggests that what occurs is a depoliticization of, the tempor of temporality, and I would also suggest spatiality of the context and subjectivities involved here. The focus becomes a kind of rescuing of individuals without paying attention to a wider topography of um, law and becoming and be belonging in which individuals exist. And what I really like is the fact that these papers, all of the papers in the collection push against this idea to try, try, to, offer, try to offer a counter narrative to these ideas. And I hope Arturo will speak a little bit more to that, so perhaps we can discuss it later on as well. <laughs>
Hi, I'm Arturo Sanchez Garcia. Throughout the process of the symposium and the collection, I was part. Uh, I was in the University of Kent, and we got received a very uh, a lot of help from the Kent Center for Law, Gender, and Sexuality. So I joined the project very early of the symposium, and I remember the very first conversation I had with Polly Haste was she wanted, she, we were trying to imagine how the symposium was going to look like, what were the questions that we were supposed to ask, how the dialogue was going to be. And she was really pushing the idea of we need to bring people who have been part of successful strategies of legal interventions, uh, judicial cases, we need to organize a dialogue where all these conversations, all these strategies are shared. And I was more into, we need to think about the possibility to share. We have a global dialogue of, of gender and so, gender, sexual, social justice, but we have very little experiences of the law. Up to what extent we can share a strategy for legal reform. So, and this is, we ended up pushing the question to what is now the, the third part of the publication. What is the scope for joint working to advance sexual and gender justice? The, que the original question uh, that Holly asked got very soon very complicated when we started looking at cases, when we started looking at who to invite uh, to the conversation. Because of course, all the political nuances of each cases came about. This, there's no a surprise for any of you if I talk about the process of legal opportunities that sometimes have very little to do with a human rights discourse, but an opportunity of loving and who being in the right moment at the right place in order to pass a law or to have a successful <coughs> successful decision in a, in a court. So in which terms the question developed into asking what are the terms that we can use in order to have a dialogue? Who is going to be in this dialogue? Who is going, who do we acknowledge that is mobilizing in law? Who, who, who moves where? Do we move, talking about the spatial uh, dimension, why and when and who is going to benefit directly from mobilization? There was also the question of what is the political meaning of having this conversation here? What is the political meaning of publishing a collection about the dialogue? Because there was, of course, uh, the challenge of is, does this count as mobilization? Does the dialogue count as mobilization? Up to what extent we are ready to go back and learn how to listen as opposed to pushing for, to advance joint strategies for, joint strategies for, to advance uh, sexual and gender justice. So as we wrote in the introduction for section three, we found ourselves occupying a position at a midpoint in between a hope for a better future that we all share, a future of where everybody has a li lives a life with dignity. <laughs> But then a present where we're trying to assess the material and symbolic resources that are preventing free people from bringing that future to bear. And the past of, different, of various social movements that have been following opposite uh, and sometimes overlapping trajectories to address questions for justice. What is the role of law at the center today that, can, that somehow can make all these conversations happen simultaneously. I perceive a continuity in the third section from the second section that Kay just presented, and that is 
most of the contributors are pushing for establishing the terms for a creative and transgress creative, transgressive, and subversive encounters with the law, with the state, with courts, and with all other institutions. So in that sense, the section, third section opens very nicely with a report from Village in Vietnam, where Nguyen Haiyen and Liu Anbu are talking about how Vietnamese social movements uh, are strengthening the links with a global human rights movement and how they are appropriating the narratives of representation, the narratives of recognition. There is a very, it's a very beautiful project of empowerment for LGBT, LGBT uh, young people based on orga in organization and capacity building. The second intervention in the section is from, comes from Tunisia. It's a photo essay and it's fascinating to, under, to locate the essay in a post-revolutionary Tunisia where the photographs somehow are intended to talk about all the subjects that, got, that did not intervene or got lost in the, in the revolution, all non-gender conformity. Uh, the expression he used, gender non-conforming persons. And how can, they, can this space, how this requires a space of reappropriation of spaces for visibility. What are the terms in which this visibility happens? And again, pushing the, from the aesthetical element, a transgression of identity that has very little to do, or somehow, well, no, it doesn't have little to do, but somehow it's walking in the opposite direction that the claim of progress of the new constitution is suggesting in Tunisia. That was a, that's a photo essay by Nicola Silva and Kuludo Matmadu. Then we have, from India, the project that Nasdik promoted. I don't want to talk much about it because Francesca will be able to, to talk uh, in more in detail. But to me, it's very interesting to see how an intervention based on technology, intervention-based abuse of mobile phones, it's actually an intervention to create a space where Adivasi women and women from lower castes are defining themselves what are the spaces of where th there are resources that have been, uh, I'm going to read it, it's easier because I feel nervous when she's, <laughs> I'm talking about her work. So they are creating spaces where women are producing community-based resources to challenge structural socioeconomic, socioeconomic inequalities and marginalization. So with Francesca's intervention in the collection, we start in a very interesting dialogue about the methods. What are the methods that we use to produce the space for people to engage with their own narratives or their own concepts of social justice? The following piece by Chiqui Tangente in Philippines. Uh, this is a project where that Galang, a report that Galang produced with IDS. And it invites us to think about what are the methods that we use when we're doing auditing work? Who gets in, who gets out of the project, and up to what extent the method that we use in our interventions can itself produce new forms of exclusion. So this piece invites us to think about the politics, the very delicate politics of methodology. And from here, Chloe Vast has a short reflection that comes directly from the symposium about the language that we use, not only the method, but the language that we use. If we're trying to think about who is 
who is asking the question, what law got to do with it? We did have a lot of thinking at who is the we who asks, and up to what extent we still, we have enough spaces for self-representation, who is being included, particularly in the, in the legal scenario, where identities are so closely determined. Uh, Chloe is going to ask him the question, do we still have space for autonomy, an autonomous exercise of self-representation, or what do we do with the limited spaces available? And that is, to put it in short, the very long discussion about the LGBT, whether that includes everybody, how do we need to change, do we all need to change it? So at this stage in section three, he's engaging in a very rich conversation about knowledge production. Two minutes, okay, so I'm going to run. <laughs> uh, all of us who have uh, work on gender, sexuality, social justice, human rights, we've all done very important exercise of intimate reflection, of intimate embasements of what we do. We've all, we've all had to think about the ways we use, we use personally inner interpersonal relations power, and how do we use that power? So from the beginning of, when we started imagining the symposium, we did want a space of, to talk about people's trajectories, to talk about the micropolitics of activists, the micropolitics, the micropolitical struggles of academics. What does it mean to become a legitimate interlocutor, particularly in the sphere of, of law? So we have the experience of Audrey Mubugwa from Kenya. It's very interesting how Audrey is challenging the way we conceive transsexuality. Who defines what transsexuality means? Who defines what the legal strategy to recognize transsexuality is? There's an important contrast between section two where Iñaki is talking about the radical claim of identity in the new gender identity law in Argentina, where Audrey is still advocating for a very instrumental relation with the law. In that sense, what Audrey's challenge is challenging us to think is how do we think about the, in the first level, how do we think about politically correct uh, language, but at the major level is how do we confront the contradictions that law in itself has and the multiple trajectories that law has. Ivana Radachik from Croatia, is going, she's a feminist lawyer and she's going to defend on her piece that we need to stay as legal outsiders. It is the only way we can confront all these contradictions and still somehow maintain our political spirit will be as maintaining ourselves as, as legal outsiders. And that is very important. Uh, she goes, she's doing it now through politics of self-care. And again, we need to think about the level from the micro-political level to the, to the micro to the micro to the macro political level. So, this, uh, I'm just going to run through the last part of the discussions of solidarity. These discussions somehow were, where we try to, not, not to resolve, but to engage with the problems of what is the political significance of the dialogue, what is the political significance of the trajectory from police question about successful, successful experiences to all the questions and more questions that we, that we managed to, to address. We have uh, Gatete TK talking about the global LGBT movement. We do have a narrative of solidarity that is operating and is mobilizing resources. What happens when those resources, very well intentioned, fall into projects that are not deliverable? What happens when the people on the ground are not designing the projects of intervention? And uh, 
who is, who is speaking on these projects, and that question continues with BCLM intervention. Who speaks? Who is speaking in the projects? And more importantly, who is listening to these projects? All these conversations on the last part are somehow engaging us to think about the, or rethink the meaning of solidarity. What do we mean now? It, it is time to go back and rethink what solidarity was and what, so, what do we want solidarity to, to be? But not only solidarity, but autonomy, subjectivity, inclusion. What are the democratic values that are supposed to sustain the advance in legal, legal and social justice? Uh, so this is all. Yes, I am, I am concluding. <laughs> I'm just leaning forward slightly. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, the, the, the collection is going to finish with this scope to repoliticize re solidarity. Adrian Jujunko is talking about the very famous anti-homosexuality view, what happened with all the resources that didn't, did not achieve or did not arrive where they were supposed to. And Claire House from, from the UK, she's talking about uh, we do not need to change the resources, but we do need to change the space of action. And again, rethinking about the dialogue is in itself a political agenda that we need to address. <coughs> Matthew Waite is going to talk about to divert soli solidarity to the very ethical element of selflessness action. And Tamara Adrian is going to do the same. There is a very, a very uh, important micropolitical exercise of selflessness that we need to engage. And Kate is going to take it, uh, Kate Bedford from the University of, University of Kent, by recognize, acknowledging there are other conversations happening that we still haven't really embraced sexuality conversation. There's the law and poverty agenda that has been going on, the law and development. And well, I guess that is what we are trying to do, to acknowledge the different discussions and to recognize ourselves as actors in the discussion. So Tuan Wang and Paulino Ostekov will finish, will conclude the, the collection by reminding us that the, so the exercise of solidarity is an exercise of sensitivity. How do we belong? How do we occupy? Multiple, multiple spaces. What are the identities we have? What's the language that we have? What are the positions we occupy? And how flexible those positions are. So I just want, can I read the last paragraph? Go on. That is the last paragraph. You're the guy who's slightly under length, so I'll give you a bit more. That is just the <laughs> paragraph of, that, we, that we wrote uh, at the end of the, in the introduction of section three. The movement, the, the, this movement, demands that we detach ourselves from abstract, immaterial, and intellectual ideas of justice, and instead commit to ethical precepts that determine better ways to be with one another. A vital part of this is the imagination of alternative realities, but this must be done with careful attention paid to the material struggles and power dynamics of everyday life, in order to imagine futures that are solid enough to transform into strategies for action. The contributions in this collection offer, offer ideas and starting points for how this might be better achieved, but the conversation is one that is ongoing and one that continues to demand that we listen with care. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's actually quite an inspiring section of the, the collection. And mm -hmm. Also a little bit challenging for those of us working in the area as well. It's always good. <laughs> so before we move on to questions, uh, we're going to have two contributions from a couple of contributors to the collection. So we've got Francesca here. Uh, if, if you'd like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about sure. your piece. Five, five minutes? Five minutes? That'd be great. Okay. 
hi everyone. So I'm Francesca Peruglio. I work here at IDS now, but prior to joining IDS, um, I, I was working with an organization based in India called NASDIC. And, and, um, and as um, staff of NASDIC, I also uh, joined a symposium um, here in Brighton last year. Um, and um, something I, like I just want to say something I, I really valued about the symposium and I, I hope and I, I, th I think it's been reflected quite well in the in the collection as well. It was the, the great balance between theory and practice and having uh, practitioners that wanted to think more through the theory and, and academics and researchers that wanted to think more through the practice and kind of this, this fora that made all of that possible. Um, and um, so I feel like the, 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 um, the work that has been shared by other activists, by other practitioners from across the world has, has been grounded on very strong uh, understanding, on very strong um, um, theoretical framework. And, and that is what I think is the, is the real like added value in terms of both the symposium and, and the, the publication too. So the reason why I, I was at the symposium um, and, uh, and what I, I'm, I talked a bit in, the, in my article in the, in the collection um, is our work, the work that I was doing with NASDIC on legal empowerment and specifically one of the projects that, we, we, uh, that is still ongoing that uses ICT for empowerment and what, what are some of the lessons that we learned from that experience um, and some of the lessons that we learned from our projects are of course relevant to other similar initiatives um, around the world. So um, the, the project that is called M Maternal Mortality Now and uh, of course it's an ambitious title but um, it, it, uh, it seeks to address um, issues of um, gaps in access to health care for, for women and especially for indigenous women. And, and a longer run goal is of course to counter uh, maternal mortality in, in the state of Assam, which is in the northeast of the country and is the state with the Indian state with the highest maternal mortality rate. So um, the project basically fuses community participation with uh, advocacy, uh, litigation, and, uh, and of course data collection through uh, information communication and technology. And it basically adopts a, a right-based perspective to uh, address uh, more development uh, issues like maternal mortality and morbidity or infant mortality. Um, and it does so by creating a space, a platform for women who do not have access to, to services uh, because of them belonging to a marginalized, historically marginalized and exploited community um, like the in indigenous communities of the tea gardens. Um, and it, this, this platform allows uh, women to share about uh, the barriers they face in accessing health services um, and about um, you know, also seeking redressal for, 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 the barrier, for overcoming these barriers and, and ultimately obtaining better access and better services and more dignified childbirth and motherhood. Um, so this is in a nutshell uh, what the project, so the project strongly relies on community participation and on the fact that women uh, do reports about uh, the, the barriers they face 
and that is both a strange and a huge challenge because we are we are talking about uh, marginalized um, uh, communities and and groups where um, you know very often issues like maternal deaths or mat or infant deaths are seen as more fatal circumstances rather than actual rights violations and that's where really the the, the right based framework uh, needs to um, to step in the conversation and 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 provide um, and where the law can provide a basis for people to advance claims uh, and improve and improve their lives so now the the ICT mm, I mean there's a the, there's a, um, a lot of buzz uh, uh, about ICT and how ICT based interventions can uh, can uh, you know Im improve um, empowerment or more generally improve access to services access to knowledge and and um, and some of the the lessons we find are are well are very mixed to be honest are mixed in the sense that on the one hand. Um, of course, uh, the fact of uh, adopting a, a, a technology-based platform allows us allowed us to collect quantitative and qualitative data in a very easy um, way, um, and um, and to have people reporting anonymously and yet very accurately about um, the issues that they faced, and and it allowed us to ultimately have a good, like clear um, and sound data of the various uh, issues and the various problems that women face and, and where in the, in the project area. And, and to use the data for advocacy, for litigation, and for uh, formal um, redressal mechanisms like administrative complaints or lawsuits. And, and that really bolsters the power of, of advocacy and of uh, community-led advocacy. On the other hand, um, the use of technology <coughs> can, if if it's uh, if it's applied blankly, it does ultimately reinforce um, already existing uh, inequalities and divisions within within a group. And so, uh, in that sense, we have seen um, that, uh, for example, some of the women that were texting the most were the ones with kind of a higher status within their community. And so. Not to not have a, like a filtered in a way um, use of technology meant that uh, women who had kind of who were already marginalized within that marginalized group felt even 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 more left apart and even more vulnerable. So um, that so an evaluation that we ran kind of uh, highlighted some of these issues and and um, and spoke to the need for. Um, ensuring that that uh, ICT interventions are crafted, keeping in mind uh, inter-community and intra-community power rela relations. Um, and um, yes, I'm closing now actually. Uh, so yeah, so as I was saying, um, I think these lessons were very specific to our project in uh, in Assam, but I think they. Um, they they can and they do relate to wider to wider um, struggles for advancing women rights and for for creating more inclusive uh, health uh, infrastructures uh, and it is this synergy between uh, um, between different countries and different experiences that I think is the basis for for this work um, and that's where as I said the the added value of this work is. Thank you.
myself from being a technologically like witted, but I'm just struggling with this one. So we've got a we've got a message from Tuan who works quite extensively with Paulina who's sitting in the back there. Um, so sh I received it through WhatsApp, but um, and I've got it onto my computer, but it doesn't seem to be playing. So I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to play it. And you can hear it, but you're not going to be able to see her, which is um, I'm sorry, but can't see, I can't figure out any other way around it. Well, you can see her waving and then she's gonna. Okay, so that's Tuan. I'm glad you got to see her in action. I'm gonna I'm gonna play I'm gonna play the clip with just the audio now. Hopefully this works. And 
lastly, I would like to thank IDS for creating an opportunity for me to come to Brighton and to meet and to have a chance with exceptional people in the symposium and to contribute to this edited collection. And despite the distance, I can also participate in the book launch today. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. It's a shame she's not here. I know. She was lovely. <laughs> Um, so we're going to move on at this point to the opportunity for it to be a two-way dialogue um, and ask some questions for everybody. Before people do leave that might need to go to other meetings, just a reminder, one that the, the collection is now live, it's available on the IDS website, it's also available on the Sexuality, Poverty and Laws own website, the URL for which is spl.ids.ac.uk. Um, my colleagues Carol and Amy have been live tweeting, which is why my phone keeps on going off. <laughs> about uh, some of the key messages that have been taking place today. So if you're on Twitter, which I am, I love, uh, feel free to give us a retweet or have a conversation with us about some of the issues that have been raised. Let's move on to questions for those of us that um, would like to kind of talk about that a bit longer. I've got a few questions in case we need them, but um, can I open up to the floor? Um, any kind of reflections or questions you might want to put to our panel? We can start with your thoughts. What are you thinking? Shall I kick us off with the question that I've got for you guys? <laughs> which is, I, I was part of the symposium, um, and it was, it was what was really fascinating about it was the diversity of different voices. So each of our speakers have said, we had lawyers there, we had activists and academics, we had people from donor organisations or northern-based kind of campaign organisations. So that was kind of quite, um, I was quite nervous about how those kind of people would interact. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about what that felt like as part of the symposium mm -hmm. and then how you try to capture that complexity in the way that you selected the pieces for the collection. Could I mm. throw that at you first? Um, yeah, I'm looking at you because I, I, I know that that was something that you, that you were put, put a lot of thought into ahead of the symposium with Kelly. M from, my, from my perspective, and as I mentioned in when I was um, presenting earlier, I've come out of an academic background, but I've worked in South Africa with an activist organization that the Truth and Action Campaign, and I've often found these dialogues to be really complicated mm -hmm. and, and imbued with a lot of power. And I felt, I felt quite conscious of, not, of, of being a South African in a northern institute, having a symposium in Brighton, quite conscious that that also reflected a lot of the power dynamics that many of the activists and lawyers who were coming to the symposium really resist. And through the symposium, because it was, it was really carefully thought through uh, by quite, quite, a, quite a large team led by Arturo and Polly, there seemed to be a willingness to try and work across these different spaces and to listen to one another. So that was my impression. There were some really good, robust discussions and debates and disagreements as well, particularly around uh, trans rights. And that seems to be something that I, I encounter quite often in international conferences, that there is a, a real um, anger amongst trans people that they've been 
lumped into this into this broad category LGBTI without a kind of a recognition that their struggles are unique. So that was something that came up again in our symposium and which Audrey to some extent speaks to in the collection. What do you, what do you both think? Do you want to go first? I think one of the very first decisions we took was to invite people from the so-called South because we share a very specific experience with the law and we knew that the, the dialogues won't start with the general assumptions of the legal values of democracy. That there was not going to be a discussion about equality, there was not going to be a discussion about, uh, I don't know, the relevance of same-sex marriage, but there was going to be all these other discussions that are, that are happening as satellites. What happens, how do I get resources? Mm. How do I engage with the trans stuff? What's the critical celebration in Argentina? What's the actual way to engage with the recriminalization of homosexuality? So I think it required, and we verbalized it with the team, it required a lot of generosity by letting people speak. And I guess as editors, there was a lot of a very passive element that we cannot push what conversation is happening, but the, there's this thing, we, we recognize from the moment that these conversations are happening as, as, as if they are isolating, and the best we could aim for is to share space for them happening at the same time. And it was at the same time, we didn't want to have more academics than, than practitioners or than activists. Uh, so it was just a, an issue of stepping, a very careful selection of people mm -hmm. that we wanted to have. And at the moment the symposium started, it was a stepping back and let the dialogue happen. Yeah. I mean, I was in an incredibly privileged um, position at the symposium that this grew out of because I was, I wasn't particularly involved in the organizational side of it. I just turned up and took notes and it was fantastic. <laughs> um, and what I kind of, the, the impression that I got there was that there was a commitment to having these conversations however difficult, and I think you are right, these conversations, there, there, was, there was an acceptance that there would be disagreements, but that wouldn't shut everything down. Um, and I, I hope you've tried to continue that into the collection. Um, and that is why I think from the very beginning We've emphasized that communication is as much about listening as about speaking. And that is also something that has to do with our own subjectivity as well, and particularly those who are in positions of power mm. as academics, um, that we kind of have a responsibility to show a certain amount of humility and to listen. And I, I hope that we took that philosophy into creating these pieces. Um, I don't imagine that we've got it exactly right all of the time. I'm sure that we've made mistakes. Um, but I hope that that's kind of enabled us to mm. do something quite interesting with the pieces um, at the very least. Okay. Yeah. Can I say something else? There was something very beautiful that happened at the beginning of the symposium with, that, with Rahul Rao's opening words, where he established from day one that we didn't have a frame to discuss that all frames were contested, that we were not talking about human rights only, we were not talking about social justice, that we were not talking about law. So I think that kind of changed the spirit of the mm. dialogue. Mm. Mm. Francesca, any reflection? Yeah. 
spoke a little bit about in their introduction but obviously you'd like to expand upon yeah I, I mean I, I'll say very briefly we, I wouldn't say that we found a single overarching approach that people took and their mm -hmm. engagement with the government I think our publication really speaks to the importance of looking at each each specific organization working mm -hmm. in a specific kind of context in very different kinds of ways mm -hmm. sorry I'm not trying to avoid answering you I just 
um, I think one of the, the main things that came out for me is that there are lots of different ways that people hold, mm. a, I guess, a biopolitical relationship with the state and enact it through their, through their activism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh, there was one of the interviews um, where <coughs> the interviewee was asked, you know, so what, essentially your question, you know, what, what lesson do you take from this? What would you tell to everybody else? And he refused to answer. Mm. He said, you know, we are, uh, he's talking about Argentina, and he said, this is Argentina, and this is what it worked for us here because we had a particular relationship with international law, because the law operated in a particular way, because groups had particular relationships, so we were able to do this. What I think the collection does very well is assess the, um, or give some kind of insight, an insight if not an assessment, um, different approaches. Um, one of the really nice things, or one of the contributors, uh, she sent me an email saying, we're going to keep this in our office and it's going to be a kind of handbook for us because we can use this to look at the different approaches that people have used and then think about that in relation mm. to our own situation. So it's more a case of different approaches have different pros and cons. Mm. And what the contributors offer here is an insight into these pros and cons. This it depends on who you mean by the state. And again, it's going back to we cannot use these abstract notions about the social movement, the state, the law. It's very interesting in the interview with Alice Newcomb when she's talking about in Cameroon, the fact that homosexualization, homosexuality was recriminalized doesn't necessarily mean that the president is homophobic, but that the president is abusing its authority. So she goes on and describes how she's going with judges, saying that this is not a problem about homosexuality. This is a problem about due process. Does that make sense? So how, when you see one specific problem, you need to locate it historically, spatially, and start unfolding what are the branches of that problem, and find, again, creative and transgressive ways to address the problem. And I, and I do think, and this is the piece that I wrote in Solidarity, we do need to unlearn the liberal ways to go, go on about it. Progress and advance is not linear. So as soon as we start trying to find new language to address the problems that we have been trying to understand for 30 years or so, you start unveiling very specific ways to go about in a specific mm -hmm. case. At least interview, I recommend it in that sense. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I remember not, not in this collection, but at the symposium, um, Beth, it was something that you said on a panel where we were talking about um, economic and social rights, mm. but um, you emphasized something that I think uh, gets a little bit neglected when we talk about this topic, and that Cheryl Overs talks about in the conclusion. Um, we have a tendency to kind of silo ourselves, so we're doing LGBT stuff or transgender things, and, and 
and there are reasons that that's happening, but we do put up walls. And one of the things that we talk about best is alliances and making connections with different with, with different groups around a particular problem that speaks to a lot of people, that kind of thing. Mm. And I, I think there's, there's, there's avenues for this creative thinking that you're talking mm. about there. So there's avenues for imagining new ways of doing that I think is very interesting. Yeah, you know, because again, we're doing a very 
this very narrow understanding of dynamics that is social dynamics that's not how it works I think one thing that's been quite interesting for me from the programme as a whole is through all the reports and collaborations we've had with partners is the short-termism of funding has become come up again and again and again. That sense that actually to just do the immediate things that are in front of you um, are hard enough, and that's generally where resources go, but there's long, that longer-term thinking about building capacity, about building skill sets, and moving into areas like this, they just do not physically, we're not able to make that case to a lot of the donors. So I think it's something we generally push in a lot of our kind of uh, focus groups and our case studies, as usually one of the recommendations is back, you know, backed up with kind of like case study evidence. This is why you need at least medium-term funding, not short-term funding. Mm. Any other reflections? We've got probably time for one more question. Is there anything else you want to add before we move on? Uh, I mean, I think in terms of how this can be very problematic, but I've learned nothing when I came to Luton, I think GCLE pieces mm. are a really good one to read in that respect. Um, <laughs> perhaps as of what not to do, mm. um, rather than what to do, but certainly it's a good place to reflect on. He's always good for ideas. Yeah. Um, do you have any final questions? If not, I'll nick one. <laughs> yeah. Or reflections, or thoughts. I'll do a really like soft, bold one to end us on the meeting then, which is really, um, could each of you just take a minute or so to talk about how the experience of organising, attending and participating <laughs> in this symposium and then taking that forward to the collection, how has that impacted on A, your research, your approach to your research and B, your life as activists? I'm sure everyone's an activist of some extent outside of work. So that's, hopefully it's an optimistically nice one at the end. <laughs> mm -hmm. You want to go first? Okay. To, uh, to me, I, w I got very struck with Kate Bedford's thinking, saying there's other conversations that have nothing to do with sexuality. They don't have sexuality and index, not in the title. They're going to be so much more helpful. Um, you know, really, really go to, to detach yourself from the original agenda in order to learn, yeah. learn mm -hmm. uh, another agenda. Yeah, be more flexible in the, the way we imagine mm. the end of a project, research project, I guess. Yeah. I'd agree with that, that kind of, that flexibility, um, openness. Um, I think this isn't necessarily an approach to my research. Maybe kind of it allows me um, to think of different ways of engaging with people. At the very beginning of this project, and I'm so glad this happened, um, I went for dinner with an activist friend who wasn't involved in this. And we were talking about the collection, and he um, said to me, uh, it's, it's great that you're doing this, um, but be aware, he was talking about how he'd written things before and got feedback from academics and felt absolutely destroyed by the feedback because he had mm. worked very hard on something and the academics had responded in a very academic way, which can be quite brutal to mm. the um, to, to people who aren't used to that. And I think it made me reflect on my position as an academic and um, how that fits within this wider context of people doing activism and research and how it can be useful mm. within mm. that context. 
I'm very glad I had that conversation. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it would be good to just explain that the way that we we worked is for us each to work quite closely with a set of the contributors. So we had, uh, so there was a dialogue also between us and the contributors mm -hmm. with Kalik Steer really going back to Kali around how to listen and how to listen to different ways of communicating. Um, and absolutely to not, to try and not come in with a <laughs> um, sharp line academic eye on what, what people submitted because it was a really careful and generous process that we received all of these contributions from people all over the world. We needed to be careful with what they shared with us. Including some gorgeous visual work as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was kind of a real privilege to have so many people from all around the world sending these sentences and just this really amazing knowledge mm. that we we got to kind of collect together. It was a fantastic experience. Mm. Yeah, a really creative experience too, mm. working in these different forms and working with you guys. It's been amazing. Mm. I would say that after the symposium, I kind of stepped back a bit from this, so I've been less involved with it, apart from being there at the inception of the terms of reference for it. And I've not read the whole thing yet, but I've read a fair chunk of it. And it feels like every single article, it takes a left turn to something that's completely new and interesting. Yeah. So I think it's a pretty amazing piece of work. He'd say so. I'm on, I get paid off them often. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, it's, I think it's amazing. So I think at the very least, if you get a chance to look at the PDF online and to kind of dash through, mm. some of the pieces are pretty provocative um, and have affected the way I'm kind of starting to see myself as a researcher and as an activist. So oh, heartily recommend. <laughs> and, uh, last mm -hmm. comment about how it might have changed you, Francesca? Um, well, I mean, I, when you're working on the ground, Thank, Thank you, you for staying for as long as you've stayed. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. Thanks. Bye. Cool. Have a great afternoon.